Good morning. A little bit of uh, organisation, and then we're, we're ready. If you've got a Bible, one of the church Bibles, can you turn please to page 4, which is Genesis chapter 1, the first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, and as uh, David, our pastor, said, we've been doing a short series of sermons looking at chapter 1 of Genesis. Um, Some critics of the Bible have said there are two conflicting stories of creation, and basically in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis. I found a helpful comment from one of my Bible college teachers many years ago when he he made the distinction and simply said, chapter one is the panorama of creation, wonderful vista of the whole of creation. In chapter two, you focus in on mankind or humanity. You zoom in, and his words were, man under the microscope. And I've always found that very helpful. There are not two conflicting accounts of creation, but there are two complementary accounts, if you like. One gives that huge, wonderful, panoramic view of creation, and then the other zooms in and focuses on humanity, mankind. And I hope you find that helpful. The last part of the, the passage that we looked at together was a few weeks ago when David spoke about being created in the image of God. And this morning, we're going to read, uh, I think we'll read from verse 26 through to chapter 2, verse 4, and it just gives that connection of uh, what we've been looking at and what I want to look at with you this morning. Verse 26, chapter 1. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth. And every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made. And it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, 
the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Amen. Isn't it a wonderful passage from the Bible? I've got lots of things here today, so I actually need two different stands. A wonderful passage of Scripture. Um, one of the encouraging things about trying to get to the early prayer meeting that we have on a Sunday, uh, which is from quarter to ten till about quarter past ten, um, is that often you get a, a sense of what's to come later. And I was quite fascinated and encouraged this morning when I joined the early prayer time and found that the folks uh, were being led by Martin in, in prayer and in reflection on passages that I'm going to be sharing from this morning. So if at any point I expire in the next 20 or 25 minutes, um, someone who was at the early prayer time can take over and finish off the, the sermon for me. Um, I hope that doesn't happen, incidentally. <laughs> but you never know, you can never tell. What I want to do today is, is to look at this world that we live in but first of all, to look at the world as it was, and then to look at the world as it is. And then, thirdly, can you guess, to look at the world as it is to come. Yes. Um, so that's very simply what I hope to do today. And there are a few reasons for doing that. One is, what we read about in Genesis is not just an account of what did happen, but it also contains within it the seed of what God wants to see happening in the world as it is to come. And yet the world that we live in seems to be very different from that. So that's what I'm hoping to do today. Um, based on Genesis chapter 1, but going on beyond that. Uh, to reflect a little bit further. But let's start with Genesis chapter 1. And uh, here we have the world as it was. Uh, what I've described as the first earth, a home for humanity. And I'm grateful to this wonderful website that I've talked about before, uh, Free Bible Images, which uh, is available for free download of hundreds of different images um, and people exist purely on a donation basis, um, this, this website. I always like to mention it when I use their resources because it's a great organization that makes them available. And I want to suggest in Genesis chapter 1, there are three key phrases that come out in this chapter, uh, especially in this last part of the chapter, where we read about God blessing them and telling them, and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Be masters 
over the fish and birds and all the animals. And then God gives them seed-bearing plants, fruit-bearing trees for all uh, the, uh, the life that has been created to live and to be nourished and nurtured. I want to suggest that these three phrases capture something of what was there in Genesis chapter 1, the world as it was. Here we see Adam and Eve being placed as stewards of creation. They don't own this world. It's God's world, but they're placed there as stewards. They're given a, a role by God to look after this world and to nourish and support it. When we read phrases like, uh, fill the earth and subdue it, be masters over the fish and birds and all the animals, in verse 28, almost immediately there's a discord in our minds. Because in our world, to be masters over something usually involves the use of power or the abuse of power control, domination. And these are almost alien words to us. Can you imagine living in a world where these words have no sinful connotations whatsoever, but instead they recognize a role that's been given to those who are stewards of creation and those who are to be partners with God? For we've been singing about God ruling over this world. He is the ancient of days. And we do not find God's rule to be a sinful, tyrannical rule. Instead, we find when God is ruling, it actually sets us free to be the people that God wants us to be. Can you imagine the world as it was where Adam and Eve are given this charge by God to fill the earth, to look after it, to subdue it, but without any connotations of abusing that power, of usurping the authority that God has given them, and despoiling the earth, and taking for themselves what really belongs to God alone. There's nothing of that in Genesis chapter 1. This is the world as it was, where Adam and Eve are actually friends of God, created and designed to live in fellowship with him. There's a reflection of that in chapter 3 when it talks about God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And that sense of God himself being present with Adam and Eve, enjoying friendship and fellowship, connected together, living in harmony with all of creation. That's what's there in Genesis chapter 1. What could it have been like? Only three human beings have known the earth as it was. Adam, Eve, and Jesus. For the New Testament tells us that although he became incarnate when he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, yet it was through him that the world was created. 
And so Jesus, by taking on human flesh as a human being, is the first of the new race that is in heaven now and waiting for that day when the whole earth will be made new. But three human beings experienced the earth, the world, as it was. Only three. And only one is alive right now, and that's Jesus. They experienced the world as it was. What could it have been like? What was it like? I think some of the answers to that question come in some of the prophetic passages in the Bible that suggest to us pictures of what the redeemed, restored earth will be like. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11 and uh, verses 6 following, the prophet Isaiah is given inspiration by God to look forward to the restored, renewed, redeemed earth. And here's how he describes it. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard and the goat will be at peace. Calves and yearlings will be safe among lions, and a little child will lead them. The cattle will graze among bears. Cubs and calves will lie down together. And lions will eat grass as the livestock do. Babies will crawl safely among poisonous snakes. Yes, a little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes and pull it out unharmed. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. And as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful picture that Isaiah paints for us? And I think it reflects back to Genesis chapter 1. For example, uh, we read about uh, God giving seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees for food. Now, does that suggest that at that time, even the wild animals existed on seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees? You can't push it too far, this question, but it's a fascinating question. And in chapter 2, when the animals come to Adam to be named, God gives him that authority to name the animals. Presumably all the animals appear before him, including the wild beasts, and there's no harm, there's no danger, there's no threat, because there's harmony in creation. Now let me take that a little bit further. I think we see in the life of Jesus some glimpses of what it must have been like when we see the relationship of Jesus with nature. For example, he's born in a manger, surrounded by animals. He goes into his temptation in the wilderness, and Mark tells us in his gospel, he was with the wild animals. And there's no threat, there's no harm or danger. He's completely at home with them. He walks on water. He calms the turbulent sea. He turns water into wine. 
And I love the explanation of that that I read in one book, that the water recognized its creator and blushed. <laughs> Jesus is in harmony with nature. And when he rides into Jerusalem, he rides on a donkey that had never been ridden before. No need to break it in. There's a harmony there. The other side of that is the disharmony when Jesus dies. Matthew tells us in his gospel that darkness covered the land for three hours and that there was an earthquake. Why? Because the Son of God, the Creator, has died and creation reacts almost in shock and horror at this thought that the Son of God, the creator of life, should himself surrender up his life into death. And I think it all comes back to this, this sense of uh, Genesis chapter 1. The world as it was, where God had designed this world and given it to humanity, to Adam and Eve. And it was a wonderful place a place that we can only faintly imagine because the reality for us is that we live in this present world, the world as it is, our present home, and it's a fallen earth. And the image there is chapter 2, chapter 3 of Genesis where the story of the fall is recorded. The fall is the description that's been given to the sinfulness of Adam and Eve when sin entered the human family. And if you know the story, you know how the serpent depicted as Satan comes and makes a, a suggestive comment to Eve. Has God said you mustn't eat any of the fruit of the trees in the garden? And she says, well, there's one tree we're not to eat. But he begins to plant doubt in her mind. And he begins to say, well, if you eat that fruit, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. And she takes some of the fruit. Whether it was an apple, we don't know. But she takes some of the fruit and she eats it and she gives it to her husband. And then both of them, the Bible says, had their eyes opened. And they realized that they were naked and they felt a sense of shame immediately something has happened. But you know what happened then when sin entered our world? It was a bit like what happened once not far from where we lived where someone um, went to a reservoir and poured in some poisonous element into the water and very soon the whole place had to be shut down because that, that tiny vial of poison had permeated the whole reservoir and the whole community had to be shut down. Emergency water supplies brought in because it was not safe. Everything was affected. And when sin entered the human family, this earth as we know it became cursed in consequence. Three phrases about this that I think it's relevant to, to share. This is the world as it is, the fallen earth, our present home, spoiled by sin, contaminated. 
every aspect of our life, every part of this world that we know has been affected by sin. Even though we don't recognize it often, it has. We can never really experience or think about what the world was like before this happened because we live in a sinful world. Uh, everyone of us has sinned. Probably today you've sinned in word or thought or deed. That's why we need to keep coming back again and again to the central song that we sang this morning about what Jesus did for us on the cross because it was, it was there that he made an offering for our sin that can set us free. We need to keep coming back to it because we're sinners. We need to make that decisive response to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus so that we can be forgiven and receive new life from him. And yet the world that we live in is still living with the consequences of sin and the curse that's expressed in chapter 3 of Genesis, verses 17 to 19. God says to Adam, Because you listened to your wife and ate the fruit I told you not to eat, I have placed a curse on, on you, on the ground, sorry. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. All your life you will sweat to produce food until your dying day. Then you will return to the ground from which you came, for you were made from dust, and to the dust you will return. Um, recently I've been reading a, an excellent book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Uh, it's the fullest uh, exploration of that theme that I've, I've come across, and I can highly recommend this book. And one of the questions he addresses in this book is, why was the earth cursed when Adam and Eve came under the judgment for their sin? And he says this, human beings and the earth are inseparably linked. As together we fell, together we shall rise. Adam and Eve's sin did not merely create a personal catastrophe or a local Edenic catastrophe. It was a catastrophe of cosmic, not just global proportions. We are bound to the earth. We're creatures of the earth. And what we do affects the earth. An old missionary hymn from Greenland's icy mountains contains this phrase in it. It talks about looking out on this wonderful world and it still reflects God's handiwork. God's fingerprints are all over the place. But as we look out on this wonderful world, the hymn writer says, where every prospect pleases and only man is vile. And recently, social media uh, in Putlochry and the surrounding area has had quite a few pictures of piles of rubbish left by people who go into beauty spots and they don't clean up after them themselves and they leave it all lying there, some horrible stuff lying around and you think, this is not 
what it's meant to be. Every prospect pleases. <laughs> what a wonderful place you're in, camping or walking or mountain biking or whatever. And then you leave all your rubbish behind. Why? Only man is vile. Just a little illustration of the pervasiveness of sin in our society and how that original command to subdue and fill the earth and enjoy it and be sovereign over it has now been changed. And these very words become for us words that threaten and that suggest tyrants and rulers and people who cut down the forests in Brazil and uh, then we have issues of global warming and so on. So many issues. And as Christians, we should say again and again, this is God's world. We care about it and we want to hold on to it. We want to look after it because all we are is stewards. And yet this is the world that we live in, cursed in consequence of the sin of man and enslaved to sin, decay and death. Martin read in the early prayer time this morning from Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul speaks about creation being subjected to frustration, to God's curse and in bondage to decay and groaning as in the pains of childbirth. And you get this picture of creation itself almost like the tectonic plates in the world, grinding together and longing to be set free because creation itself has been so affected by what we have done and by human sin. That's the world as we know it. That's the world as it is. None of us can really fully imagine what it was like back in Genesis. But sadly, all of us know what it is like now. And it's not that there's nothing good and nothing wonderful in the world. It's still God's world. There's lots of things that we can enjoy, as we should do. But yet the impact and the effect of sin can be seen everywhere. In our lives and in the lives of others. But don't let's stop there. Let me speak about the world as it will be. One of Timothy uh, Dudley Smith's great hymns is the hymn Name of All Majesty, Fathomless Mystery, a um, great hymn. And in that hymn, the second verse says this, Saviour of Calvary, costliest victory, darkness defeated and Eden restored. Darkness defeated and Eden restored. Um, it's great to have your name in the Bible, isn't it, Eden? <laughs> but it's not that Eden we're talking about, although she will be included. <laughs> she will be included. Eden restored. Let me share three phrases that I think express the hope that the Bible has about the world as it will be. We've already shared glimpses of what it might have been like away back there in Genesis there are other glimpses that are given to us of the world as it will be when Eden is restored. Revelation chapter 21. I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God like a bride prepared for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will remove all of their sorrows. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain for the old world and its evils are gone forever. Hallelujah. That's the new world, the world as it will be, where we see Eden restored as in Timothy Dudley Smith's hymn, where we see creation liberated. Can you imagine what it will be like? Randy Alcorn in his book invites us to, to think about that. What will it be like to live in a world where there is no sin and where there is no death, no undertakers, funeral directors, no nurses or doctors, incidentally, either, because there's no suffering, there's no sickness. What will it be like to live in a world where there is no suffering, no corruption, where we can enjoy the presence of Jesus and where we have good relationships with others without any language barriers? I'm so encouraged every week to see Angie's mum and dad here with us. Um, they don't speak English. They're beginning to learn. But they're here every week to worship with us. And I wish that we could communicate more fluently. But one day we'll be able to communicate more fluently. What will the language of heaven be? Well, it depends where you come from, what your answer to that will be. But there will be this freedom of relationship and communication. Can you imagine a world where there are no weapons? Where all these military parades, where we idolize weapons of damage and disaster and death, just don't exist. There's no need for them. Can you imagine a world where there's no despair or hopelessness? Where people don't live with fear and anxiety? A world where we can begin to fulfill all the potential that's expressed right now in this earth in work and play and culture and music, art, science, technology, where all these wonderful gifts of God can be developed and applied in ways that are useful and helpful and good. A world where there are boundless opportunities to explore a world, as C.S. Lewis described it, where every day is better than the one before. Can you imagine a world like that? This is creation liberated that Paul talks about in Romans, that John got a glimpse of in Revelation. This is the world where God's purpose will be fulfilled. Um, one of my country music uh, fan, um, heroes when I was growing up was Jim Reeves and those who remember him might remember his song This World Is Not My Home I'm Just A Passing Through it's partly right but it's partly wrong as well this world is not our eternal home 
but the new earth will be. You see, this world as we know it will not be consigned to the scrap heap as a failure of God's purpose. The redemption of Jesus on the cross will affect this earth as we know it. It too will be redeemed. It will not be destroyed and annihilated. And it's the Apostle Peter who tells us what's going to happen in 2 Peter chapter 3 and uh, verses 10 to 13. He says this, The day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and everything in them will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be exposed to judgment or will be consumed or transformed. It's a word that, that has a number of different meanings. Since everything around us is going to melt away what holy, godly lives you should be living. You should look forward to that day and hurry it along. The day when God will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. And you're saying, Peter, how, how should we look forward to that day? It doesn't sound very appealing if God's going to melt the elements and set the whole place on fire. But then Peter says this, but we're looking forward to the new heavens and new earth he has promised, a world where everyone is right with God. This is the hope that's there in the Bible. It's not that this world as we know it will be destroyed, put out, annihilated, and we'll drift around in the clouds forever. It's nothing like that. It's a hope that God will renew this earth and there will be a new heaven, a new earth where there is no gap between them, where there is only the reality of the presence of God with his people, where the new heaven and new earth are joined together and where Jesus is there and accessible for all of us who know him and believe him, and trust in him. One of Howard's favorite hymns, there is a hope that burns within my heart, that gives me strength for every passing day, a glimpse of glory, now revealed in meager part, yet drives all doubt away. I stand in Christ, with sins forgiven, and Christ in me, the hope of heaven, my highest calling and my deepest joy to make his will my home. God's purpose will be fulfilled. Genesis tells us about the world as it was and the world as it is that we live in. But it also points us forward to the last book of the Bible and the world as it will be this is our hope that is anchored in Jesus. Is that your hope? Then live that hope out. Live in holiness and in obedience to God. Hurry along that day that we're looking forward to, but keep remembering, keep focusing 
on what is our ultimate destiny. And the last words are with C.S. Lewis this morning from the last battle and the last paragraph of the last battle. How the children in the story appear in Narnia after an accident here on earth and discover that as they used to say in the Shadowlands, according to Aslan, they're dead, but now they have a new life with him to look forward to. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Let's pray together. Father God, we look out on this wonderful world that you've given us, and we appreciate it, and we want to enjoy it, and all the potential in our humanness for creating things, for study, for learning, for making things. It's wonderful. And yet we see a world that has been so affected by sin, and we're so sorry, Lord. Forgive us, we pray. In Jesus, you've acted to redeem us from our sin and to redeem all of creation, the whole of the cosmos. So, Lord, please help us to find our hope in Jesus, to trust in him, and to look forward to that day, to the world as it will be when Jesus returns, when we are raised to new life with resurrection bodies, and when the creation itself is redeemed and restored and where we can enjoy that glorious reality with you walking among us. Lord, may our hope grow and grow in Jesus and may we live as people of hope today. May we carry forward uh, all that you desire of us. May we live in holiness and obedience. May we serve you faithfully. And may you continue to renew deep within us all that we have promised in Jesus our Lord. Amen.